everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. Should be Ask Addiction Specialist because I have Odie Martinez joining me again this week. If you missed last week's episode, it was really it was really great having you here, Odie. I really appreciate it. I'm Bob Weathers, and if you've seen any of our previous presentations, most of them have been solo, as I shared last week, and I've even talk, been talking with Odie and, and Franz Salvatier, who's our co-producer today. I've been talking with him. It just makes such a difference to have the interaction, and especially uh, uh, for you to be as vulnerable as you were. I just mm -hmm. The wish here is to make uh, each of these... Uh, uh, you know, podcasts each week to make them as as uh, touching as close to home as possible. And it's tricky in a distance medium, you know, in a, whether it's, you know, social media or podcasts or whatever. And I think it's really served by, by transparency. And I was just saying to Odie that I was so uh, warmly, richly surprised by your presence last week. And so it's a real... It's a real blessing to have you back, Odie. Thank you. Yeah, Good thank to be you. Back. Yeah, Odie's one of the co-producers of our show, and and now and now he's. Uh, uh, seriously co-producing. <laughs> it's good. Good to have you. As I've said before, I really want to recommend, uh, I'm doing this in honor of Austin Armstrong, who's on vacation this week, but I want to recommend that you please uh, 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 send your questions our way. France is going to be multitasking today. Send any questions or comments you have as we go forward. Uh, 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 I know Austin would have me. Oh, uh, <laughs> Austin, Austin, that's crazy. Austin is watching from Shanghai. That is crazy, which means Austin is going to be giving me little reminders throughout <laughs> the presentation today. Bob, be sure to say... <laughs> <laughs> well, Austin, I'm channeling you from Shanghai. That's so totally awesome. So I think Austin is like across the international date line. So we're talking to you sometime tomorrow night or something. I don't know exactly how that goes. It's wonderful having you here with us in spirit, Austin. Um, I really want to recommend that you share this video with others. We're interested in expanding our audience, audience always. And I think for me here with you today with Odie, really want to encourage as, as feel as free as you want to to interact with us today. And I and we will do the very best to entertain every question, take it seriously. And uh, part of the, uh, the creativity of this is to weave in questions into each week's topic. So I highly value that. And just as having you here, Odie, in, in, in the studio, having you, the, the uh, viewer, uh, interacting with us is, is, a, uh, is a way to make this more of a dialogue or a conversation. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Austin is writing to us from Shanghai, and he just wrote two words, always watching. <laughs> Has this kind of ominous, like, uh, <laughs> kind of quiet place kind of weirdness, you know? It's like, eee. Yeah, we know you're always watching, big brother Austin. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to you. It's You know, it feels good to have some um, laughter amidst all this. We're talking about such heavy topics each week. Last week we talked about shame and addiction, and we talked about some beginnings of ways out of that. And uh, we're going to be looking at today, our topic is going to be looking at shame and how it disguises itself. And because shame is so closely linked to addiction, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, if, if you're just viewing this for the first time, is that it makes sense for us to look at the ways that shame and addiction uh, themselves can be so disguised. And so we'll be looking at that today. And all of this is in the goal of, of, uh, of really 
sustaining successful recovery, which requires being able to be, as the 12-step programs talk about it more and more, to be emotionally sober, which is not enough just to literally stop drinking, if that's your drug of choice, or taking whatever drug you might have been addicted to. It requires a fair bit of psychological and relational work to support that, and that's really what this entire series is about. Now, why I've picked shame to to uh, focus on, especially for the last uh, uh, many uh, podcasts, is that the number one trigger for relapse um, with addicts who are in recovery, the number one trigger for relapse, has been uh, confirmed in the literature again and again, is stress. But the plot thickens is that is that. Uh, the, uh, the way that you measure stress if you're a biologist is you measure people's cortisol levels. Cortisol and adrenaline are the two stress hormones. And as those elevate, those elevate in response to stress. And so stress uh, manifests in the body as elevated cortisol. And so there was, in the last few years, a study of 200 studies of looking at what elevates cortisol the most. And uh, it was two things. One was a threat to social acceptance, being kicked out of our uh, group, especially by people that we care a lot about. Mm -hmm. That's the one. And the other was a threat to self-esteem, which is feeling like we're somehow broken or defective, mm -hmm. hopeless. And and uh, those are really those are good, that's a good definition of shame. Is that it, it has kind of two sides. One is the social dimension. I'm going to get kicked out. There's a threat to my being accepted by you. And and if I if I'm if that's threatened because I'm so linked to you in terms of survival, mm -hmm. then that immediately goes into a threat to self-esteem because I must not be doing too well as Bob Weathers if I can't get Odie to accept me. Mm -hmm. So those are really tied in. It's just two different faces, more of the social, interpersonal, and then the individual kind of like intra-psychic part of shame. So what we're saying here is that the number one trigger for relapse is shame. Uh, excuse me. Well, I just said it. <laughs> the number one trigger for relapse is stress. And the emotion that's the most stressful for us, it's surprising really, but it's really confirmed powerfully in this this uh, study that I was talking about. That, that's, they call it a meta-analysis. They, they hover above all the studies and analyze all of them, and pull out the key points uh, that the, the number one stressful emotion is shame. And so it's impossible to talk about recovery if we're talking about enduring recovery uh, uh, without addressing uh, triggers for relapse. And there are external triggers for relapse. If I'm addicted to alcohol, every time I pass a bar, there may be a trigger for me to, to drink. Mm -hmm. Every time I see a billboard on the highway, Every time I smell somebody else drinking, all of those things are external triggers. But just as those are powerful, they're internal triggers. And so for you, Odie, it might be uh, 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 stress in terms of your studies, let's say. Mm. For me, it might be, might be stress in terms of a relationship or however it, all, however it all divvies up. But the internal stress can be as powerful a trigger. And how that works in the brain is that if I found a way with my addiction to manage stress, and we all do, we all do, whether it's with substance or behaviors, we find ways to at least temporarily reduce our stress, our brain registers that. It locks it into memory. There's actually a chemical in the brain called glutamate that locks in that memory. Mm. And so it gets tied to your survival because to be in a stressed place, there's none of us that can, uh, I had one client said, we can't barbecue, uh, none of us can barbecue in our own adrenaline. Right. Because yeah. you, can't, you can't sustain that. Uh, adrenaline and, and cortisol, the two stress hormones, they're very corrosive. They actually do, I mean, they corrode our guts in terms of ulcers, hmm. and they cor corrode our uh, brains in terms of memory and being able to attend. You, all, you know this, you know, when you're really stressed out, there comes a point where you, your mind goes blank or you, you freeze up. It's like that's what stress does to the brain. And if you sustain that uh, for too long, it's actually 
not a good thing, <laughs> which right, common sense yeah. would say. So if I can find out that an addictive behavior, whether it's the substance or some other process, can help me with that, it's, uh, that's, that's gold. And my brain remembers that. So from a psychological perspective, since that's my background, I'm very interested in looking at psychological triggers for relapse and stress and shame are right at the top of the list. Hmm. I want to say a word about this, and I, I mentioned this to you, we're going to talk for a minute, and then we're going to dive into the, the outline for today, is that our topic is getting clear on how shame disguises uh, it, uh, itself in many different forms. Hmm. And I didn't write this into the outline, but I felt like I wanted to open with this. And if you feel moved, you're welcome to share too. I'll leave it up to you, Odie. I, 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 I'm sure that we'll be sharing as we go through this. I'm really aware that most of my life, it's a bit embarrassing to share this, it actually goes into mm. some shame for me, is that, for example, when I studied psychology in college and then went to graduate school, mm-hmm. I wrote papers on shame. We studied shame for sure. And I don't, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't really think I have this. Mm. I don't really feel like I have shame. And I know that for me, one of the ways that worked was as long as I met with success in the world, like if I was a good student, and I was, mm-hmm. uh, things were fine. I was well-received professionally in terms of being a therapist and being a teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, got along with friends and so on. There weren't a lot of reasons for me to stop and look at feeling vulnerable because I felt pretty bulletproof. Mm. And I don't even think, if you'd asked me, I would have even said this much because I wasn't aware of it. It was just, yeah. I just remember, remember reading about shame and it felt like it was kind of at arm's length, like it was something abstract. And then when I uh, really hit bottom as a function of a middle age addiction to substance, mm. and I lost uh, so many things in my career, I lost financial stability, I lost significant relationships, I, um, I lost so much of what I had built up. Mm. It was only in, in taking all of that away that it revealed to me uh, how devastated I was. And I think anybody would be devastated. I'm not saying yeah. that, that anybody wouldn't be. But I think what it brought up for me, and my story might be different than your story around this, is that left with the same devastation, you might well have a different response than me. I think that part's individual. Mm-hmm. And mine was, was almost a death-dealing depression. And I really think it was a huge manifestation of shame. To give an example how that worked, if I saw you, I'd imagine you looking at me with eyes of judgment and you wouldn't have to say a daggum thing. Mm. And I walked around like this, I was really probably clinically, or at least subclinically paranoid. <laughs> I was not doing well. I just felt awful. And so it would mean that I wouldn't speak to you eye to eye. Mm. I wouldn't be courageous to risk anything. And I sure as heck wouldn't be vulnerable around you. Mm. And this went on for uh, a few years. Uh, 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 including in active addiction. In fact, you and I were just talking about this. Yeah. Um, is that if I if I found a way to self-medicate that, and I did through my addiction, then it kept me in addiction. It was mm-hmm. like the way that I could stave off because I was already I'd already lost so many things, lost uh, 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 two basic careers as mm-hmm. a as a, a university professor and as a clinical psychologist. Yeah. And I was just devastated by that. And then I remembered back to these papers I'd written in graduate school on shame, and I thought, oh my God. It's like, I don't think I was without shame then, I was just protected. The antidotes to my shame were just uh, performing at a very high standard. Mm. And when you take that away from me, then I realize, uh, wow, I'm, I'm beyond being very mortal. I'm like slime. <laughs> that was the feeling for yeah. me. Yeah. 
Um, it's ironic that right at the time, right in the midst of this, I was invited, this is the irony of this, I was invited by the American Psychological Association, who eventually uh, disowned me or disbarred me. Mm. I was invited to, to uh, write a chapter for a book that was coming out called Shame in the Therapy Hour. Mm. And I, I co-authored a chapter with two dear friends of mine, both psychologists. One I've known my entire academics we met as 20-year-olds in college. Mm. So all these years later, I'm writing a chapter on shame. And I don't know how meaningful my contribution was to that chapter, except for the fact that I was beginning to get a taste of shame really personally. So I know that in that chapter, which was eventually published in this book by the APA, uh, that what I was writing about wasn't theoretical for me, and it wasn't research. It was like, it was like me. So. Yeah. So that's a start to kind of open up to talking about shame is that it's, it's possible to not recognize it until you're faced with loss. I know very few uh, addicts in recovery, that tends to be who I work with, people, individuals who are seeking recovery from most often serious addiction. I know very few, enough so to say that I know none mm -hmm. that are in early recovery that haven't been thoroughly afflicted by shame because it goes part and parcel with kind of hitting bottom. Right. I want to open up to you. I don't know if you have any thoughts or reactions, Odie. Any, uh... um, I guess the only thing that I thought about when you were talking about your story was um, mm. uh, back in high school. You know, I would just I would hang out with a specific group of friends, mm -hmm. and always feeling having the sense of um, wanting to talk about the issues that I had yep. with my behavior. Yep. But um, feeling like, well, what would they say yeah. if I told them yeah. about this? Yeah. You know, would they, yeah. would they be judgmental mm -hmm. or would they just kind of confirm that it's okay when I'm doing right. it, you know? Right. So right. Gotcha. just, yeah. just kind of um, mm -hmm. just dealing with that and not knowing who to open up to and yeah. when. Yeah, I really so. appreciate you bringing this in because yeah. it makes it this practical. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be deep in addiction to be exposed to what you're talking about. There's no teenager on the planet right. that hasn't been exposed to what you're talking about. You're just willing to admit it. All right, yeah. Is that I like the way that you put it. Will they reject me for bringing it up? Or will they go along with it, which also wouldn't serve you? I, guess, exactly. I presume that you yeah. want to have a, a, like a critical conversation about it, not be shamed, but also not give be high-fived for it. It's like, no, I want to talk about this. That's exactly, yeah. that's the beginnings of it right there. I think that shame, social perspective taking is what they refer to it in cognitive psychology. It mm. really doesn't build until early adolescence. Our brains are finally able to abstract out of my experience and I can imagine how you think about me. Right. That, that capacity, they call it social perspective taking. So it begins uh, for most kids around age 11, 12, 13, somewhere in that range. Mm. And so all of a sudden what might not have been an issue for you can become an issue. In fact. To be honest, most of us up to that time wouldn't have been able to identify something as a problem because it also requires being able to step back and look at myself, my behaviors, and so on. So yeah. the ability to do that is a developmental achievement, and then be able to bring that to appear is a developmental achievement as well. But therein lies the rub is that that becomes our new reference group. It used to be my family of origin, mm -hmm. and more and more it becomes my peer group, my, my peers at school and so on. Yeah. And am I going to risk being rejected from them? And that's tantamount to being rejected from our family, particularly our parents or parenting figures. 
uh, which brings up this very evolutionary, strong evolutionary protective device that says, whatever you do, don't alienate your parents because without them you'll die. Mm. And psychologically, we carry that with our peers. You may not literally think you're going to die, right. but you'll avoid it at all costs. Right. And so it's to say that it's there kind of implicitly. And that's a good example. I can't imagine anybody not being able to relate to that, right. no matter what their background is. Um, we have a, we have somebody who uh, uh, brought up a, a comment here as Odie was talking, and I appreciate this comment very much. This individual said, I can relate to avoiding shame feelings by being as good as possible so others won't reject me. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, that's been an affliction for me, for sure. One way to be good is just not to share it, you know. Yeah, exactly. You can just be good. You can be cool, <laughs> you know. I just don't share stuff that people are going to think is weird. You're not going to risk that. Uh, another way is is uh, implied in what I suggested, which is just always excel until that falls through. And it falls through for all of us, no matter or not, because eventually we, we begin to lose capacities that we may have depended on. If I'm a fast runner, I will lose that. I'm a fast drummer, and right now this shoulder isn't working, so I've definitely lost that, yeah. at least temporarily, and I will lose it permanently with the aging process. Mm -hmm. The same with my, our minds. Yeah. Anything that you value about yourself is temporary, and so if I'm identified with that, it's a uh, short-term proposition, basically. And uh, just in response to what this individual shared about being good, psychology has a term for this. I know it because I am it. And it refers to this as pathological accommodation. In fact, there's, two, there's a combination of two things that go on here. One is that I have a kind of unrelenting standards for myself. And some of you can relate to this. Sometimes referred to as perfectionism, you know, where you just yeah. you hold yourself to this kind of... Uh, uh, unbending standard mm -hmm. and then if you couple with that is that I I need for you to see this and like me then it means I'll do whatever it takes for you to like me so mm -hmm. if you need for me to be funny then I'll really work at being funny and yeah. so I'll hold myself to the highest standard and I'll also accommodate to your agenda one example for me for me with this and I've shared this before I believe in previous podcasts um, is uh, all the way through high school, I was the best student in high school. Mm. I was just, and I just took it for granted. And so at the end of high school, I got this award for valedictorian, never got any Bs. That, that was cool. And I was a good student. I just thought I'm really smart or something like that, you right. know, took it for granted. <laughs> I went to college and I had the same experience. I was the best student in college. I got out of college and the same thing. I, I, at graduation, I was the valedictorian, 4.0, grade point average, and so on. Mm. I got to, got to uh, graduate school in a class of 25 students, and there I was in a classroom where Franz and Odie and Bob were all the best students in their college class. Mm -hmm. And so there's 25 students out of hundreds that applied for this program. Now I'm now sitting in the class full of Bob Weathers. <laughs> <laughs> and what's sad and probably predictable is for the first year of graduate school, I kept doing what I'd always done, which is just work to be the best. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I did okay with that, did okay with that. There was one class I was in that first year, psych psychological assessment, where the midterm exam, uh, the teacher handed back the exams and says, I wanna read the entire exam of one of our students to you all just to show you what can be done. It happened to be mine. Mm -hmm. It only happened once, but the whole, at the end of it, the whole class stood up and applauded, and it was me. Wow. They were, and I remember feeling really, I have it right now, I have a physical reaction. I got the chills from it. And you would think I'd just be really excited. How cool is that? But there was a fly in the ointment, and there's a fly in the ointment with this strategy, and, and others who are viewing this may have seen this, mm. is that this is halfway through my first year in graduate school. By summertime, 
of my first year in grad school, it was a six-year program. By summertime, I realized, I went into a crisis, I was in a crisis. Mm. I thought, how is this possible? I went through four years of high school, four years of college, and I go through six years of graduate school just doing what teachers want, want to hear me say. Mm. There's nothing wrong with excelling, but I, I remember thinking to myself, have I ever had an original thought? And it was extremely mm. painful to me. Have I ever had an original thought? And it was a major existential crisis. And I came back in the fall of that year, resolved not to do that anymore. Mm. And so I, I didn't do it anymore. And so I watched my grades plummet. <laughs> it was really a, a bummer how fickle fame and fortune are. All of a sudden, teachers were writing back to me and saying, what the hell is this? What are you thinking? Whatever like this. And I was just, I was, I was taking assignments and really trying to find my voice in them. And I'm not saying they were great assignments, but they, I was no longer hewing to what I imagined somebody wanted to hear. Mm. It's very hard for me because I was very attached to being the best. Yeah. And I stopped being the best that way. And it never really went back. It never went back. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I've continued along my career with a lot of accolades uh, uh, as a professor, as a clinician, and so on. And I still have that in me to attach to that. So I have to be really careful. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a central kind of pothole in the road for Bob Weathers is to get really attached to you liking me or me mm. becoming what I think you would like. I don't mind you liking me, but All let right. me make sure I don't give up the family farm for you to like me. <laughs> and that stopped uh, really consciously after my first year in graduate school. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, and then it's been the rest of my lifetime to work that out mm. because, and I'll, and I'll tell you, as I mentioned earlier in the preface, is that it was in, in the very worst throes of addiction for me with all the loss that came, yeah. that I was clearly not only not the best, but I felt like the worst. I had mm. been rejected from everything that I had valued. And I didn't set it up that way consciously, <laughs> but it sure as heck happened that way. Right. And so it was gonna require a different basis for self-esteem, a different basis for connecting with others. And I'm gonna have to do that with a big blot on my forehead of a big A for addict or L mm. for loser or X for ex-psychologist or whatever <laughs> like that. Yeah. And that's been the last 10 years. That's been the last 10 years of working on that. So when we talk about this, about shame, including today its disguises, yeah, it's not coming from a theoretical place for me. And for many of you who are viewing this, I suspect it's not coming from a theoretical place for you. And I, I, and I well imagine that when I talk about the impediment that shame is to forward movement, whether it's into living a creative life, or living a clean and sober life that you immediately see the implications of this because it has the capacity to paralyze forward movement and drag us down in a vicious cycle mm. and it's uh, death dealing for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about uh, uh, shame's disguises and I'll talk about just a few variations on it. This first story stays relevant. It's more personal uh, for sure. Um, and I want to talk, I was talking to Odie about this uh, you all know that I lead a men's group each week at Beginnings Treatment Center here in, locally in Santa Ana. We met today and, uh, and we talked about this as men, is that one of the disguises for shame that's very common, and I like what somebody wrote. <laughs> somebody wrote, I think what they meant to write was screw shame, lots of laughs. I totally agree with you. That should be the title of today's presentation. <laughs> Screw shame. If this wasn't a family channel, I'd probably flip, flip a bird right now, but I don't want to offend anybody out there. But in my spirit, I am. Uh, yeah, that is the point, isn't it? The fact is, it, to stay with that metaphor, shame screws us. Mm. Yeah. Shame screws us. And, uh, and the beginnings of it, like we're talking about today, is to even locate shame. If you don't even recognize that you have shame, which is, again, 
threat to social acceptance, threat to self-esteem. If I don't even recognize it, and I didn't for years and years, you're not even out of the starting blocks yet. You gotta at least recognize that you have it to begin to address it. And so in that way, shame is very effective. In fact, shame screws us by disguising itself and still having deleterious effect. It affects us negatively, and we don't even realize that we're being uh, 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 under the thrall of shame. Mm. So one of the, the common uh, uh, disguises for shame, this is the next yeah, slide, thank you. Uh, one of the common disguises for shame is uh, anger and aggression, particularly mm. for men. Uh, I lead mixed uh, gender groups as well, and women, I ask women about this, and they say that being raised in this society, it's hard not to be raised with some of these uh, more masculinized values or, mm. I don't even know, call of values, behaviors, whatever. But when I talk to a group of men, uh, they immediately get this, is that you, you respond to any feeling, a big feeling bad about yourself by, uh, by rage. Mm, yeah. or by resentment, by some kind of form of aggression. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, especially in my relationship with, with my wife, yeah. you know, she may say something yeah. that yeah. she didn't mean yeah. to say it in the way that yeah. she did, yeah. but I'll take it there, yes. yeah. you know, and yeah. then I'll just... Yeah. Um, and the response probably is sometimes, maybe often, is anger, right? It's anger, but yeah. my anger is very silent, so yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll usually give her like a cold shoulder. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. be silent, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that definitely is. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate that. you naming yeah. that because anger can manifest. For me, it manifests much more overtly. It's a source of embarrassment to me, but when I'm pissed at you, I t typically vocalize it, you know, mm. and I'm in your face. Yeah. And I'm not proud about that. And uh, there are other individuals, and you're saying this is the case for you, is that anger will actually lead you to withdraw. Yep. And it's and it's mm -hmm. probably not even thought out. Like, I don't think, let me just be pissed off right now all over the place with Odie. I don't think about it. It's an automatic response. Right. It takes a lot of consciousness to inhibit that. Whereas a withdrawing response, or what's referred to in the psychological literature as a dismissive response, mm -hmm. you with your wife, if I'm imagining, when you get angry, you'll just shut down, like you said, a cold shoulder. You'll dismiss her. You'll just, what problem? Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. What's your problem? You yeah, know, there's exactly. all, kinds, yeah. all kinds of ways of putting up that. Uh, my mom had this. God bless my mom. And remember, my mom, the kids referred yeah. to her as, what was the, oh, she, they, we, we actually referred to her as mom's giving us the silent treatment. And it, was, it wasn't until about 30 or 40 years later that I right. read attachment theory to understand that that was mom's response to being overwhelmed, but also being pissed off. Mm -hmm. It was just to shut down. And so as a kid, yeah. it felt horribly cold in our environment because yeah. mom was just unavailable. But that was, that was her being angry. And mm -hmm. there was no, there was, I had uh, three siblings. There were none of us that didn't recognize it as anger. It just wasn't. It wasn't lashing out anger. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I appreciate you naming that, Odie, yeah. because it's, it has different forms. Uh, let me ask a question to you in the audience: Is why why would anger and aggression be? Uh, how could those be effective? Why would we turn to those uh, uh, in response to shame? So think about that for a second. I don't want to make this just a gendered thing. I, I know this as a male. Uh, and I think it has enough universal application that, that we all know about it. And I like you bringing in you and your wife. It's in our most intimate relationships that will get stirred because yeah. we have the most vested interests. We have the most skin in the game in our marriages, yeah. in our closest relationships. I can say this for men, and, uh, and uh, you can reference this. If you're a woman listening to this, you can reference your own experience. We talked about this today in the group, is that we're socialized from day one to never be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, I never yeah. show you my soft underbelly. And so that if it's sadness, we talked today about how difficult it was for us in the group. We were just knowing how difficult it is to cry. 
mm-hmm. you know, how it gets stopped yeah. up, how difficult it is to cry, um, how difficult it is to uh, met, uh, you know, express sadness or grief. And, and if what I just said earlier about shame is that it's the most, stress re- uh, the most stress-related in terms of cortisol, the last thing I want you to know is that I feel weak or fallible mm-hmm. or broken or defective. Yeah. That's the last thing I want to know. So I'll put up any defense against that. And for us guys, in fact, any vulnerable expression of emotion is pretty much taught out of us by the time we're in grade school. Uh, and we certainly picked this up in high school, thinking of peers and so on like that. Yeah. And there's all kinds of negative terms given to a boy that overexpresses emotions, and you can mm-hmm. think of what those are. But they're really they they have uh, uh, they they express social rules. You just don't mm-hmm. want to go there. You know that you do not want to be on the outside and right. be labeled with some of these things. Did somebody just write in? Or oh, okay, okay. Let me. Somebody just wrote in. Thank you for sharing. I love your questions and comments. Because what we build ourselves to be might be or is falling apart, and we need to protect it, or at least we believe we do. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. That's I'm actually, I'm actually going to come to that in a couple of slides. I want to come back to that. Thank you, whoever shared that. Yeah. That's really it, isn't it? Is that there's so much dissonance. If all that you're wanting to be as a husband with your wife right. is in that moment feeling threatened, something about your character, something about your behavior, it goes, it, the dissonance that creates inside in terms of you can't possibly take that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've got to reject it. And so you reject her. You, right. you do it by shutting down. I do it by chasing after. It's just yeah. it's the same thing, different manifestation. <laughs> I do want to come back to that uh, in just a couple slides. And there's, uh, there's another uh, entry here. Thanks, Franz. Shame is so painful that if I focus on somebody else's behavior, it takes the focus off my shame. Okay, who's reading my notes? <laughs> I'm, I am so coming to find out because I swear to you. I think Franz is giving some tips. Oh, Franz. No, this is Austin. Austin, are you Austin. doing this in Shanghai? <laughs> okay, where's the drone? <laughs> Darn it. Stop that, Austin. Uh, that's awesome, you guys. Both these responses literally are two slides in a row. They're coming up in two slides, so hang on. I do want to respond and kind of flesh this out. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, let me say a word here, and then I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go more deeply into both these responses. I really appreciate it. And let me know if I touch on them in the way that you intended. There's a social worker out of uh, Texas that many of you have seen her uh, TED Talks, and uh, she's got uh, lots of YouTube videos on shame. She's one of the, she's probably the most recognizable expert in the country now on shame. Uh, her name is Brene Brown. Hmm. And she says that, ironically, Many of us, men or women, are trained not to be vulnerable. And she says the only thing that will heal shame, ironically, is vulnerability, which is to open mm-hmm. up into it, which is then counterintuitive to the extreme, is that if shame keeps me from being vulnerable with you and I don't have a way of going that, then I'll be locked into a shame spiral. Mm-hmm. And she talks a lot about this, and we'll be fleshing this out more today. So the relationship of shame and, vulner- shame and vulnerability is a, is a dicey one for sure, and we need to acknowledge that. So let me set up an answer to the two questions here. Thank you both here. <laughs> what are some common barriers to vulnerability? If, 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 if to work through shame is for me to expose myself. I'll give you all an example. I walked into group today. I have a little clipboard that has attendance on it. It's the one day that I decided to wear light-colored trousers. I walked in, and I have a black pen, which I, because I'm one-handed Bob, I dropped it on my trousers, and it did artwork right down my left leg. <laughs> I wasn't really happy about it. You can still see it. I wasn't really happy about that. And 
uh, you know, it's possible in a given circumstance. Let's say I was meeting, I don't know, meeting somebody that I was really uh, intimidated by. I'd probably want to cover that up, and I sure as heck wouldn't announce it. But you know what I did in this group? I mean, the group is on shame. And I just looked at the group, and I said, do any of you deal with this? Sure, shooting. The one time that you wear something light, you spill ketchup on it. Or in yeah. my case, I decided to do, you know, Picasso on my left thigh. And uh, uh, there are all kinds of barriers that can come up. Uh, around vulnerability. This happened to be one that didn't matter so much, but it could have been that way. Yeah. On public speaking, I've done some embarrassing uh, uh, goofs in public speaking before, and you're just kind of stuck with it. And you can either kind of laugh about it or kind of gulp. Or you can also panic is also possible. <laughs> so there are different ways to that to go. I actually prefer just being a laugh about it. And in the group today, we could all acknowledge that, yeah, I don't know how that happens, but the one day, the one day, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I want to uh, respond to the two uh, the the the, uh, the two items that were shared here a minute ago. One of one of the barriers to vulnerability uh, we've already talked about in terms of anger and aggression or rage and resentment, and there is a function that this has. And you can think of how this goes for you with your wife. I can think about it with my wife, and I can think about it in general too. Is that anger can help many of us stay glued together. Mm. If you think about it, shame is a weak emotion. It's a vulnerable emotion. And so if I'm going to feel like falling apart, what can I do to hold myself together? Well, one thing I do is get pissed at you. Yeah. Or, or in your case, your way of doing that is withdrawing. In either case, it serves a function. It helps me stay glued together. There's actually a technical term for this in the psychological literature, and it's referred to as self-cohesion. Mm. And it means this exactly, you know, like... Tape is cohesive or adhesive, right. and it helps to cohere the self. It helps to glue the self together. And so it serves a very uh, uh, powerful function, and it's hard to let that down. Far easier to be angry at somebody than to risk uh, fragmentation. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm thinking I want to throw something out there and yeah. let me know if this this plays with it. Yeah, Because sure. uh, as soon as he said that, I started thinking... Um, my wife and I, we sometimes we bond, we connect, and, and um, with food. Yeah. With more, more specifically, junk food. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So we'll be, um, you know, maybe we had a discussion beforehand, and then we we made up, and then we're like, hey, let's go get some oh, yogurt land or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I like that ritual. So it's like it's almost like a it's like a uh, way to close the loop on whatever happened before. You guys yeah. work through whatever you did. If there's been a rupture, let's say, right. you work that through, and then it's yogurt land. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes it's not even a discussion. Sometimes it's just we had a, a long day at work, yeah. or it's yeah. just something yeah. happened yeah. on either one of our ends where yeah. that's how it ends. Yeah. It ends with us rewarding ourselves yeah. with uh, with junk food. Yeah. Well, since you're emphasizing junk food, even that <laughs> word junk, I, I would be remiss here. And I know that we have some listeners that are very aware of nutrition and all of that, as well as many of us have, uh, who have who've been addicted to substances have also been addicted to be other consuming behaviors like eating, mm. eating or not eating. And for oftentimes it's around sugar and fat and that kind of thing. Right. I, I don't want to uh, diagnose you. You're my friend. Right. And I think I just want to lay out different possibilities. Is it part of what it does is it feels like, you know, I talked about it gluing us together. Right. It glues you and your wife together to do that. You yeah. know, just it's like a shared ritual. I even like the fact that sometimes resolution doesn't require a labored dissertation. You know, mm -hmm. you can just you can just kind of work it through with a glance or a hug. Or right. There's yeah. ways of doing that. Yeah. And I like your way of finalizing it with a shared ritual for someone that might be watching their favorite TV show, yeah. listen to a piece of music, eating your favorite yogurt. 
And then just to be fair to, to the addictive component, this would be for you to look at and for uh, yeah, there's, absolutely. there's all of us are at risk of being addicted. If it's used as a, I'll put it this way, if it's used as an antidote to working something through, mm. honey, let's not deal with this. Let's go to yogurt land. Right, then yeah. it's suspect. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and also just to look at it biologically is that uh, yogurt with sugar and whatever all, whatever the components are, there's a part of that that's stress relieving just biologically in terms of the right. metabolizing of that. And I doubt there's very many of us that don't turn to our version of yogurt in terms mm -hmm. of self-soothing. And again, it's really a matter of degree. I really don't like to have this radical thing about uh, addictive behaviors. It's all in balance, it seems right. like to me. Yeah. There are exceptions to that, particularly like, oh, I'm just gonna take a little heroin. There's a problem with that with some of these, these substances because they so amplify normal biological responses, but yogurt doesn't compare to heroin. Right, yeah. You'd have to do a lot of yogurt to compare with just like a micro scopic element of heroin so that doesn't feel fair to compare that so it's just to keep an eye on that yeah absolutely anything that i like doing or that you like doing can, can go in in and out of being an addiction and it's it's more in my view of, of what makes an addiction addiction is what uh, uh, uh what what does it serve what does it serve right. if if this behavior serves to protect me from expressing feelings or mm -hmm. being in touch with feelings if this keeps me from relating to you if this somehow stands in the way of my being able to work productively then i want to examine that and i i guess in this light you could be addicted to water i don't know why i picked that because <laughs> i don't know but but it's just to stay open that you can right. be addicted to most anything one of my favorite authors in the area of addiction and recovery is uh, gerald may he wrote a book called Addiction and Grace. He writes from a Christian perspective about addiction. And nice. he was, he's one of these authors. I really respect this. In the first pages of his, of his book, he was a, a well-known Christian psychiatrist back in Washington. He listed all of his current addictions. And it was like two pages worth of addictions. Wow. And so he included everything but water. And it's just like that really opened the door for me because I was so not at a place that I could do that. And he was bespeaking the transparency that's possible, especially in self-help groups like AA and NA, mm -hmm. I think Refuge Recovery, there are other groups of Smart Recovery that really emphasize our sharing what we're addicted to openly. Mm -hmm. So I can become less and less ashamed of that. And yeah. he modeled it in that book. So it just means uh, it's worth looking at ourselves. We're not talking about spending all your time focusing on what you're addicted to, but it's right. helpful to look at behaviors and see what they're serving. Uh, someone has written another comment here. Shame would not be so powerful if we could just let go of our rigid belief systems about who we think we are and get curious about relationship to everything. I like that, and I, I think I will we'll hold off on responding to that because I want to respond to the second uh, share, and I hope to come back to this, okay? I don't disagree with you. Um, shame, by definition, is, it creates a rigidity in us. You can be flexible with your wife. Shame comes and all of a sudden you're rigid. Mm. And so it's, it's an automatic uh, response. And part of the task is how do we begin to de-automatize that? And I think that that requires psychological work. I think there's other things we can do in terms of self-care, including self-regulation, like with meditation that can help. Mm. But I think it takes a tremendous amount of shadow work, working on my personal shadow for me to be less reactive to my wife and probably you to your wife. And in that more flexible place, we do stay open and are able to be much more curious. By definition, it's impossible to be curious in a state of rigidity or self-protection. Self-protection means I put up a wall to whatever it is. And so I stop being curious about you, I stop being curious about me, because I'm hell-bent on self-protection. Mm -hmm. And so anything that we can do to help build those muscles of flexibility, it sounds paradoxical. How do I, I know this as a drummer, 
the faster I want to play, the more relaxed I have to hold the sticks. Mm, yeah. I have to actually be more relaxed to play faster, and so it's like going east on a westbound train. And that's really, in order to address shame, we have to be able to learn how to relax in the face of that, which actually rigidifies us, mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a tricky thing to do. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking more and more about the implications of this as we talk about, in fact, next week's topic, I'll just say, is on self-compassion, and it will be linked into mindfulness. There are things that we can do that will help Bob and Odie and France and Austin and Shanghai to be able to release our death grip on shame. There are things that we can do, and we'll be talking about those. I want to come back to the second comment, and, and I want to add to our talking about uh, anger and aggression, our, our ability to, to uh, blame others. You know, this is an interesting thing. We're going to run over a little bit of time here, and I want to check with you, Franz, our co-producer. Uh, how do you want me to do this? Because I, we, we got started later today. I can also kind of wind down here and come back to the remainder next week. I want to ask you what you'd like. This is Franz off to uh, the side here. We can probably just keep going. How about if we go, how about if we do this? If we try to cover the rest in about 15 minutes? Uh, yeah. Is that okay? If that's okay with everyone this time. Is that yeah, okay with you? Yeah, yeah. I'm open. Apologize to you and our audience. We were a little bit slower getting started today. I just looked at the time. I'm usually uh, pretty uh, punctual. punctual. And I, I just, you know, if you can't see all of today, then come back and you can review this. We have all of these videos archived. So we'll continue on. Um, uh, in addition to my being angry at somebody, in addition uh, to it keeping me glued together, it can be a very helpful distraction just to project all my anger onto you, or all of my, excuse me, really project all of my shame onto you, and we right. do this all the time. Psychology calls it sh uh, splitting and projective identification. I split off my shame, and I say to you, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's so obvious it's a projection, and yeah. we do that in subtler ways all over the place. And so it's the basis, in my view, of our uh, racial and other uh, you know, our, our, uh, biases or prejudices. Those are born out. If I can find an out group, if, if Odie and Bob can, can band together and find an out group out there that we can, uh, that we can uh, banish, you know, send out as scapegoats, mm -hmm. it draws us together and helps relieve our own uh, shameful plight. We just put that on somebody else. It happens all the time. You can find this in biblical stories, this whole image of the scapegoat where the nation uh, actually projected onto a goat and sent the goat out into the wilderness right. to carry the sins of the people. Mm -hmm. And uh, we still do this uh, uh, alive and well these days. One of the best books I've read on this, uh, I used to use it as a textbook, is simply called Up From Scapegoating. And it looks at scapegoating, how uh, integral it is to our, our group behaviors. Mm -hmm. And we do it in groups who also do it individually. And so far easier to blame others than to feel shame. Anything to avoid feeling like a failure. The truth is, is that none of us can sustain that well without practice. And there are things we can do to own up to our failures that are less uh, devastating, but that takes some work. And I can guarantee you, I can speak for myself, is if you came into my life six years ago, as recently as six years ago, you saw somebody who for the first time was having to face severe limitation. It was undeniable. I mean, I could go psycho and deny that it happened. But it was undeniable that I had really screwed up things in my life, mm. uh, owing to the com combination of addiction and unresolved stuff that came up because it had not been resolved. Mm. And now addiction actually brought it up. It was disinhibited. So I began to act out of that place. And so for years, 
I really struggled with being able to face my limitations and my uh, the wrongdoings that I was clearly uh, guilty of to be able to face that without shame. That's a piece of work. And we'll be getting into this as we move in this, these next few weeks into talking about things like self-compassion, self-forgiveness, mm. uh, uh, is, is that you begin to withdraw the projection. I'm less likely to project onto you what I feel bad about and more willing to own up to that. Mm. And there's none of us that can do that uh, on a moment in a moment like that. It takes practice to do yeah. that. There's two options here. One is we can just continue attacking others. <laughs> and if that's the case, we're done for today. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. And I'm saying that teasingly because there's not a one of us that's listening here that won't continue to do this when mm-hmm. we do it. Yeah. You know, this awareness may help you with your wife to some extent, but I'm sure she'll find a way to like that. Oh, yeah. Mine will with me too. <laughs> and it'll touch off the shame response and we'll attack by withdrawing or by being more overt about it. Mm-hmm. We can continue that, but there's another option. That's really what we're talking about in this series. And it's to find a new way to deal with shame. Is there some way of me dealing with shame other than aggressing against you? Is there some way for me dealing with shame rather than just projecting that out onto you? One author calls it evacuating the affect. The affect being the emotion of shame. I just evacuate it. Have you ever been with somebody that you just feel slimed by? Yeah, well, all of us have, yeah. all of us have. <laughs> and I don't know for sure in every instance, but oftentimes I, later I can refer to anything of some repetitive slime experiences I've had. I realize what I'm doing is I'm carrying that person's projection. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. making me feel like probably what they feel like if they felt it, but they don't and they won't. They're more than happy to have me carry it for yeah. them. So I'll feel like shame and slime and crap about myself. Yeah. And that's really not my own feeling. And maybe some of you have experienced that. that that's clear indication of this dynamic of splitting. They split off the negative, project it onto you, and then we absorb that. Yeah. So we've got to find a new way to deal with shame other than that. To do this, it takes a tremendous amount of courage because facing shame is painful. We've already indicated that. The highest elevation of cortisol for you and me is shame. Mm. And so to face that rather than to block it, deny it, project it is very painful and and we have to be willing to do that. And if the cure comes from being vulnerable, let's talk about that Mm. for a second. Uh, It takes courage to do this. Uh, The French uh, root of the word courage is cur, which is simply heart. It takes opening our hearts. Hmm. And sh- what shame does is it has us close our hearts. Yeah. This is tied into the last comment there about rigid beliefs. It's rigid beliefs, rigid assumptions, rigid reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rigid way of living. It's as if the heart is, is uh, encapsulated in ice or maybe better cement or concrete. Mm-hmm. How many of us have experienced in relationships being disappointed, breakups, other disappointments, and made a decision for a short period of time or maybe a longer period of time, I will not be hurt that way again. Mm-hmm. I will not make myself vulnerable. Yeah. I'm going to encase my heart and protect it. And um, I just met with somebody earlier today to talk, who talked about this with a relative who made that decision uh, years and years and years ago and has lived true to that. This person does not make himself vulnerable to anybody. So he doesn't get hurt. And if the goal of life is to protect myself and not get hurt, that's probably not a bad strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't assume that's the goal of this life. No, definitely not. (laughs) I don't think it's a bad aspiration. (laughs) But I think maybe an alternative would be, is there a way for us to be selective in terms of who we're in relationship to Mm -hmm. and to find a way in a safe context to risk being vulnerable, to risk opening our hearts, to risk being courageous? So I want to uh, finish up today with an exercise. I want to ask you all this. 
When did you explode or blow up with somebody in your life? And this could include projecting blame onto. So it could be a, a, a conflict between you and your wife mm -hmm. or me and mine. It can include blowing up at somebody. It could be withdrawing from. It also could be blaming them as a temporary antidote to your own shame. Can you think of an example of when you've exploded with anger or with blaming as a response to something that transpired in the interaction and it really served as a defensive function against having to feel shame. I'm gonna make you feel bad rather than me feel bad, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. I want you to reflect on this for a moment and uh, love to hear your responses if you wanna share with us. And uh, uh, Odie and I will think about this for a second too and then we can share. There can be real value in beginning to link up some of our behaviors to what's going on internally, and this is an example of it. I want to tell you guys a story, then I'm going to call on Odie. I was, uh, I was seven or eight years old. This is my first memory of this, but it stands out to me still. And I was in the kitchen of our family home, and uh, uh, I had opened a cabinet, mm. like about the, side, the, the height of my head, because I bent down to get something, and who of us hasn't done this? And I came up, and the cabinet hit me right here, right here in the middle of my head. Man. It hurt so doggone bad. And unfortunately for her, my sister Nancy, who was a year and a half younger than me, walked in right at that moment. Mm. And I remember, even as a seven or eight-year-old, I remember lashing out at her and screaming at her. I've been thinking about this that event this week in the context of this. I've often thought of it when I was introduced in graduate school to Freud's idea of displacement, which is really where you kick the dog. It's kind of you kick the dog, you take out stress at work, like with Franz when he when he's bugging you. You go home and kick the dog. <laughs> that's that's what uh, Freud called displacement. It's a defense against feeling. Mm -hmm. You just kick the dog rather than being uh, more direct about your expression right. to Franz or Bob or whoever. Yeah. And I've often thought about this interaction with my sister in terms of displacement. But this week, as I've been reflecting on this material, I, I wonder if there wasn't also a very significant component of shame and how I thought about that is that if I'd bumped my head as a kid like that, I would have been left with the pain and it would have been painful. I doubt that I would have lashed out at anybody. Mm -hmm. I might have myself, but that really wasn't my nature, you know, to, you know, to say, how could you do that, Bobby, or whatever like that. I, I might have. I think I just sat there and probably wept. Mm -hmm. But for my sister to walk in and witness that, I think made me feel very vulnerable and mm -hmm. kind of like uncoordinated, yeah. maybe stupid, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I took care of that feeling by <laughs> lashing out at her. I think this might be one of the earliest versions. Why the story is remembered is I have other examples from childhood I can remember uh, this, I can also remember a time a few years later where I hit Nancy, I hit Nancy, mm. and it was like, that's so not cool. Yeah. Apparently, up to that point, it was cool, <laughs> and then it stopped being okay. <laughs> and I have to tell you, with this head incident with the cabinet, when yeah. I did that, it was one of my earliest experiences consciously in memory of conscience. Mm. It's like, that's so not okay what you just yeah. did with her. I couldn't help it, and I don't know that I repaired it with her. Mm. Uh, but I thought about it later, and I just—I hope that I repaired it. But I, I don't know that I did. I don't think I was all that conscious. But I was enough so to to, to realize that's not okay. Yeah. That's not okay. Um, so that's an early example of when I blew up at somebody, and I've never thought about it this way. As as uh, I think it's quite.
probable that it was an antidote to shame. That's a distant example. I want to invite you, Odie, if you think, if you have an example you'd want to share with us. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I remember, it's actually, it's happened a, a few times uh, with my wife. Um, a family member, when I was younger, would say, I can't remember the exact words of how they would use it, but just the feeling of um, a feeling like not being good enough or uh, not being worthy yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, my wife, I, I again, I don't remember the exact word that she said, but she just said like one word, and it just it it a switch just went off in my head, mm -hmm. and I lashed out at her yeah. from what she said, yeah. and. Um, and later on that day, we talked about it, and she said, "What happened? Yeah. Like I just said this, and I didn't mean it the right. way that you said that you think that I meant it." Mm -hmm. And I, just her asking that though, I was able to think about it, and I was like, "Wow, you know, it, it was this one moment when this relative said something to me, yep. the way that you said it, that yes. made me feel that way." Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. so just, so just feeling that way off of like one word. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, holding onto it as long as I did, and then just in an instant, being able to just uh, my wall yeah. goes up immediately, and mm -hmm. just uh, deadpan, you know, it's like yeah. you need to die now type yeah. situation, yeah. you know. But yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. That's a perfect yeah. example of it. Psychology, developmental psychology, talks about this in terms of RIGS, R-I-G-S, mm -hmm. which is an acronym for representations of interactions that have been generalized. You mm -hmm. can see why they call it RIGS. And the idea of this is that you had whatever, you probably had multiple interactions right. that were generalized into this word. Right, They yeah. get generalized. And then it becomes an inner representation for you of shame. Mm -hmm. And so when your wife inadvertently says, boo, you go crazy. Right, yeah. And we all have this. There's not a one of us in our audience that doesn't know this experience. Yeah. Speaking of rigid belief systems, there's a rigid reaction. I like how you said it. It's just like, bam, we're uh, them as fighting words. Yeah. And we're all, <laughs> and the way to think about this with some grace towards ourselves is that typically it's not a single occurrence. It's a lot of occurrences of a certain yeah. kind of interaction. Sometimes it's not even a word. It can be a look in my eye. Yeah, exactly. Or a tone of my voice. Mm -hmm. It can be anything like that. And all of a sudden you go from zero to 90. You go, how the heck did I do this? Well, we're all subject to this. The good news that's implied on what uh, Odia is saying right now, I was thinking of it as you were speaking, is that half the battle, I think over half the battle, just becoming conscious of it, and it's yeah. wonderful that you're able to yeah. process this kind of post-mortem with your wife, is that becoming conscious of it brings it out of the dark, brings it out mm -hmm. of the basement, and then you can begin to operate on it. As long as you're not aware of it, it has you. Yeah. And with your being aware of it, it moves more and more to where you have it. Not mm -hmm. to say you won't be subject to it, but you can, you can begin yeah. to work on that. In fact, next week when we talk about self-compassion, Maybe we can come back to this example or yeah. one like this. There are skillful things we can do all these years later that we can do to begin to kind of excise the infection of some of these rigs, mm -hmm. these representations that represent hot buttons for all of us. Sounds good. I really appreciate it as you were talking also, I was thinking about how, the, how this is relevant to our conversation about addiction, is that if you're prone to addiction, let's say alcohol, and you have one of these interactions, yep. you might blow up at your wife, you might head to the refrigerator and pop five beers, mm -hmm. a, and it's just some way to deal with it, whether it's lashing out or uh, you know numbing out. Mm -hmm. Either There's lots of ways, so it's very much connected to our holding to uh, uh, to a path of recovery from addiction. Mm. Because as I talked today in the group, 
I asked the group, I said, how many of you have had interactions just like what you just described and know that it's, been, that it's triggered relapse for you and or just uh, increased use? There was no one that didn't raise their hand. Mm. Every single person yeah. in the room said, absolutely, I've relapsed over this, yeah. which is to say that it's a universal phenomenon around our various addictions. And you can just observe yourself. Whatever your addictive behaviors might be, just notice when there are these ruptures in relationship, how oftentimes they're responded to with very tried and true formulas that may be dysfunctional, mm. but may serve to relieve the anxiety or the tension that's related. That's a great example. Yeah. Thank you. In fact, the, the next part of the exercise was how did that work for you? And Odie's, the example you gave, gives a good example of, of, of it's not effective if you just go blowing up with your wife all the time mm -hmm. and she doesn't know what hit her. Yeah, she exactly. literally doesn't. She didn't mean what you intended. That's, that's not the point. Yeah. You're the receiver and you interpret it a certain way. And then you guys are able to come together and work that through and mm -hmm. then go to yogurt land, right? <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know about that, Dave, yeah. but maybe we did. We get, uh, thank you, we get uh, a small subsidy from Yogurtland each time we mention it here, and so we want to thank you guys for <laughs> bearing with us. Okay. We've got another uh, comment here from the audience. It's hard to bring awareness to this tendency to project without feeling ashamed of it. So it's a good time to be kind to oneself, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it makes me think of, thank you for sharing that, yeah. What it makes me think of is that we move into the next several sessions talking about things uh, that we can do that really provide um, like a, a, a restoration of, of self-esteem. Next week we'll be focusing on self-compassion is that anything that we're talking about, like for you to talk about what you did with your wife, or I talk about my, my having projected onto my sister, just rage at her, mm. it'd be easy for that to go in a shame hole, and it probably has for me, and it probably has for you. Mm -hmm. And the trick of it then is that how can I hold that and have compassion for your wife as you do, have compassion for my sister as I intend to, mm -hmm. and also have compassion for ourselves as human beings. And I think there's some things that we can kind of massage open in a conversation of how do we, it's tricky, and most of my life I've avoided talking about the things that we're talking about yeah. because I didn't have any skillful means for managing the shame that would follow. Yeah. If I told you that I yelled at my sister or you told me that you yelled at your wife or withdrew from your wife, yeah. why would I do that? Because it's going to make me feel like caca about myself, so yeah. I would avoid that. And so how do you do these two things that look at the odds with this? How do you open yourself to be vulnerable to shame, uh, to talking about shame mm -hmm. and not get sucked into its vortex? And that's really, that's, that's really a key, it's a key question. I don't think I'm going to try to uh, give a quick answer to that other than to suggest that where we go next week immediately is into self-compassion. I do feel like that the opposite of shame is self-compassion or mm -hmm. self-forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And it requires for me to ask my sister for forgiveness. It also requires for me to forgive myself for having yelled at her. Mm -hmm. And that's not always obvious. And we'll be working directly on that. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that question, that comment. It's good. It's good. So we do have a visual image here. Do you have the visual image? Yeah, there it is. Found this online, and it's just—it's an image of what it feels like. Can you see? It's yeah, it's smaller. Yeah. What it feels like to uh, be ashamed, where people are pointing fingers at us. And I also thought about this in terms of projection of blame, how it feels pretty good to be those that are pointing the fingers at the person who's being shamed. Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of exposes in a visual form how it can go for us around shame and blame of others. So today what we've talked about are some of the disguises for shame. 
And uh, I shared with you at the beginning how I lived most of my life not even being aware of shame. So that's a pretty doggone good disguise. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about shame, how it can manifest uh, itself indirectly by anger. Why am I so angry? Well, maybe part of that is I want to stay glued together. Shame helps mm -hmm. me stay glued together. Why am I so hell-bent on blaming others for their faults? Maybe I feel faulty fundamentally yeah. faulty. So we're looking at indirect ways of getting to our shame. And the goal here, again, is to withdraw those projections. If you think of a fishing line and do what Odie's doing today, which is to own up to it. And it's the most challenging in our most intimate relationships. And yeah. so what you're doing with your wife uh, is, is the way to go and to be kind to yourself. I wonder if it's even implied in the yogurt land. There it is, another one, yogurt land. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wonder if it's even implied in that to, that, uh, that, there's a grace in that. It's like, you know, okay, we're good. Let's go treat ourselves kindly. Yeah. You know, that's a way to treat yeah. yourself kindly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, I've mentioned it several times. It's been intrinsic to what we're talking about today. It's a little bit like, uh, uh, this is the other, uh, uh, we've been sitting on one leg, which is about shame. I don't know if it's possible. It, uh, it, we're ready now, I think, to talk about ways that we can build self-compassion. And we'll be doing that next week in exercises uh, and want you to join us for that conversation. The goal of this entire series is to create as robust a uh, recovery as possible. Recovery from addictions to substance, a recovery from addiction to certain behaviors, anything that keeps us uh, away from being uh, the best that we can possibly be. And shame is one of the killers. It chops away at the roots of your best self, Odie, my best self, Bob. Mm -hmm. And if we can find a way to proactively um, uh, face shame and move through it, uh, then we're moving towards the aim of this series, which is unshaming. How do we unshame ourselves? Um, uh, I think I shared with you all that I led a group for a couple of years with men called, it was Bob Shame Group or something like that. And somebody said, that's a depressing name for a group. So we came up with unshaming. We kind of invented this word. And uh, that's really what we're talking about is how to unshame ourselves. It's the title of the book that I'm completing right now is un Unshaming. And we'll be talking these next weeks in terms of what resources can we begin to build up and practice so that we can begin to uh, fill in the gaps that shame has created inside of us. I don't think that there's anything we can do in one fell swoop. I doubt that that really happens often. It certainly yeah. has not been my experience. By, but by laying down one strand after another of things like self-compassion, we can actually get to a more resilient place. Your, the correction that you made with your wife around this, this instance where she said something, it will happen again in some other form or maybe the same form, but yeah. you're already on a corrective path with this. Um, there's one author that calls it a corrective emotional experience. Mm -hmm. It could have been a really painful and kind of staying stuck experience, yeah. but what you guys did in terms of your self-awareness and your wife's willingness to work with you and then your willingness to go get yogurt at the unnamed place, um, <laughs> is, is a, it makes it a corrective emotional experience. Yeah. And we lay enough of those down and we can actually change not only the way that we function, or we can actually change our brains. Mm. Uh, it's really pretty amazing to me yeah. that they were that resilient and that's really what we're talking about here. Are there any final questions? There is a final question. As we wind up, I really struggle with these kinds of exercises because we can't think ourselves out of this dilemma. Yeah, yeah, the wish, it's, it's well taken. I totally agree. The wish with the exercises is that we develop more of a firsthand, what I would think of as a right brain relationship to this material. I can talk about pathological accommodation, for example, till the cows come home, and it won't do a dadgum thing about my pathological accommodation. But if I can begin to root that concept in personal experience, which moves it from just being a left brain, 
linear language thing, abstract, to being an embodied, emotional, more of a right brain phenomenon, that's in the right direction. And then if I can bring that into my interpersonal relationships, that right brain groundedness, and we can begin to source that material and, and begin to mend or repair, that process I believe in. Yeah, I don't, uh, I think, I'm, I think I'm like exhibit A on this. I read however many books and research articles on shame that I did in graduate school, and a lot of good that did me. <laughs> I really like the way that Carl Jung talked about this. He talked about the distinction between knowledge and understanding. And he said, you can know a lot about shame, Bob, and not understand it. And he meant literally by understanding is to stand under something. Mm -hmm. And to stand under shame, the way that Odie, you're sharing today, the way that I'm attempting to, to bring to you all, to, to, to engage in these exercises where we actually uh, uh, move away from our student's desk and get down into the muck and the mire of shame, that's a start in the right direction. And I, I, I hope that I never misconvey that thinking about any of this is sufficient. I think two things are required. I think being able to access the right brain, these wounds happen in the context of right brain experiences. Mm. Like you, it's the tone of your wife's voice. Mm. It's having said that, it's not like she ranted at you, right. but it touches something and it goes right into your right brain, which is a physical, it's a bodied reaction. Yeah. And so I don't see how any solution to that would be like a disembodied solution. Mm. I, I appreciate uh, what this individual shared. They, they agreed, agreed with this and also suggest that we practice, practice, practice. Mm -hmm. As we move into the next weeks, we'll be doing the exercises will be much more uh, practice related. And, uh, you know, I just I'm involved in Refuge Recovery Locally, which is a mindfulness based recovery group. And just this last week, I led a, a meditation at our uh, on our Saturday at our Saturday meeting. And I shared it, it was on self-forgiveness, at the end of which there was a robust conversation. And I really, I really underscored it by saying, you may have had a positive or not experience today with what we did, but I can guarantee you one thing, if you don't practice this, it won't endure. It really takes going over and over and over. Think of any skill that you've developed, and then we're talking about subtle stuff that's, that's traceable to trauma. It's gonna take a lot of practice to begin to change the direction the Queen Mary is going. Mm -hmm. and, and what's cool is that we do have the capacity with practice and with grace to, uh, to change the direction of the ship. I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Odie, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate again. you being here. Uh, it's <laughs> wonderful to have you. Thank you, Franz, for hosting us. Be careful out in uh, China, Mr. Austin. <laughs> Sending you lots of love out there. Uh, uh, did somebody just share something new? Okay, I'll read this before we sign up. Oh, this is good. This person says, perhaps first being aware of it, let's say shame, through exercises is a step in the direction of change, but it is not enough. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's not enough. These examples are meant to be suggestive of any exercise that we give here, if you can follow up on it in your own interior work, whether it's journaling or movement or some other uh, creative expression or meditation or therapy, all of these are ways of taking this material deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it's, it's uh, as, I, as I said with the example, just your awareness, you're halfway someplace that you weren't before. Yeah. The awareness is not sufficient, but it's necessary. Mm. As, as a start with conscious awareness, but that's not, that's not sufficient for change. For transformation to occur, occur, it takes it residing in a deeper place inside. Yeah. And then in the case of, we're talking mainly in the context of relationships, then it takes bringing, having the courage to bring that to your wife the way mm. that you did.
did that. Yeah. And uh, so whatever grace is afforded is much more costly. It's not a cheap grace. Yeah, we have to work at it. We have to work at it. Thank yeah. you all very much. Please do this. Please uh, uh, turn your friends on to what we're doing here. It's great having Odie. Um, uh, I recommend that you access last week's video if you missed it with Odie and me. Our podcasts are available at Ask an Addiction Specialist online. Also at beginningstreatmentcenters.com. Also uh, on YouTube. So we have their archived and available. I also want to recommend that you reach out to me directly if you'd like to at my uh, website, my professional website. It's www.drbobweathers.com. And there's a comment section there where you can send something to me and it gets routed through my email. And uh, I'm happy to respond to you. Okay. So, uh, and as I have more time in these coming weeks and my shoulder feels better, I'll begin uploading our videos to my site too. So, uh, 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 many roads all leading to Rome here. Okay. Uh, blessings to you. I wish you a week of self compassion. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. Bye bye.